Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's become an all-too-regular ritual. Every time there's a mass shooting... Families are plunged into mourning. America stops, horrified. A furious debate erupts about gun control, and then nothing. Nothing really changes. The news moves on. Well, it's been 16 days since this moment in Uvalde, Texas. The headlines might have changed, but the funerals of children are still taking place. Breaking news, another mass shooting in the United States, this time at an elementary school in a small Texas town. Sadly, now we can confirm to you what has now been the worst and deadliest school shooting uh, in 10 years. This is another dark day for this nation. More than two weeks on, we're learning more and more about what went wrong in Uvalde. Yesterday, the families of victims testified before Congress. I left my daughter at that school, and that decision will haunt me for the rest of my life. Somewhere out there, there is a mom listening to our testimony, not knowing that our reality will one day be hers, unless we act now. Could more have been done to help those children? Will gun laws in America ever change? My oath as a doctor means that I signed up to save lives. I do my job. In this case, you are the doctors, and our country is the patient. Please, please, do yours. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the aftermath of a Texas school shooting. Before we get to the argument that's tearing America apart, it's important to understand what really happened on that fateful day. A word of warning, it's not an easy lesson, but it's one that many mass shooting survivors want you to hear. As the news of the shootings broke on the morning of the 24th of May, the Times US correspondent Jackie Goddard was in Florida, where she lives with her family. The first thing I thought when I heard the news was, really, here we go again. And I think that's probably what most people in America thought. That very morning, just a few hours earlier, my 12-year-old had arrived at school to find uh, it was on lockdown or it went on to lockdown just after he got there. 
because a 13-year-old had taken a weapon to school and they were hunting for the child. It turned out that he had a, a replica Glock BB gun. So that was the start to my day. And then by that evening, I was on a plane into San Antonio, Texas, to head on down to Uvalde, where children had actually been killed with an AR-15. And my home community, my other son, actually is a student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Parkland, where in 2018, 17 students and staff were killed and 17 more injured in a shooting there. So, you know, I come from a, a community that has gone through now what Uvalde is going through. And it's heartbreaking to see them just at this starting point that you know is going to be hell for them. Jackie immediately headed to Uvalde in Texas to report on what had happened. When you drive into town, one of the first billboards you see is for a firearms shop. You see signs advertising hunting grounds, dove hunting, deer hunting. There's a deer sausage making plant on the road into town. It's a community that embraces guns as part of their culture, but not for this. Uvalde is a pretty humble community, a largely Hispanic community. It's surrounded by farmland and prairie and agricultural area. And in the background, you see mountains, and there's no cityscapes on the horizon. For Jackie, knowing how much a school shooting scars a community, speaking to families in Uvalde was a haunting experience. Well, gosh, I mean, it's it's just gutting to see. I, I remember when it it happened in Parkland, I, I was having to report, and it was happening pretty fast and there were deadlines. I can remember I couldn't even speak at first. I, I was so appalled. The atmosphere was, was obviously one of just sheer numbness and shock. People were still only just hearing who were the victims. Names were beginning to go around the community. People were scouring social media. They were making calls. They were hearing rumours that first night there were families gathered in the civic centre in Uvalde, which had been designated the reunification centre. Pupils from the school and parents were all gathering and being matched up. As the day wore on and then into the night, let's call them the lucky ones, got to take their kids home, then there were some that were left that didn't. And then there came a point that late afternoon or evening when those who were left still waiting for news were asked to provide DNA swabs so that the investigators inside the school or at hospitals who were dealing with corpses could start putting names to faces. And when I say faces, um, with no apologies for being graphic here, because I think this is something that people need to know, Some of those, the DNA was needed because they couldn't be identified because they didn't have faces. This was the nature of an AR-15 blasting into a child's face. That's what people here have been dealing with. And um, I was talking to the head of the Texas Funeral Directors Association, who is down here helping out 
they've had to draft in facial reconstruction experts just so that some of these families can have that last moment with their child in a casket. This is quite a Catholic community here where they tend to embrace the idea of having a visitation and viewing before a funeral. And the head of the Funeral Directors Association was telling me that they've gone all out to try to ensure that these parents can have, as he said, one last moment with their babies without it being too horrific. In Uvalde, Jackie spoke to the police and to families, piecing together a timeline of what had unfolded. This is a period that's being referred to as 84 minutes of terror. We know that this was Tuesday the 24th of May, and the gunman, who lived for reasons we're still not entirely clear on, with his grandmother, he does have parents, he shot his grandmother in the face and then went on this rampage at the school. Now, prior to that day, he had had some interactions with folks on social media, which with hindsight indicated that he was building up to something like this. So if we reel right back to the March the 1st, he was on Instagram and he was talking about buying a gun. And then two days later, he said he just bought something. And then March the 14th, he wrote again on Instagram a kind of cryptic message that he just wrote 10 more days. And another kid asked him, what, are you shooting up a school or something? And he said, no, stop asking dumb questions and you'll see. Then May the 16th, he turned 18. And this is crucial if you're in Texas. May the 17th, the day after his birthday, and then on May the 20th, in two separate purchases, he bought two AR platform rifles from a local firearms shop legally, because in Texas, when you're 18, you could celebrate your birthday by buying a semi-automatic weapon like an AR-15. But at the age of 18 in Texas, you could not buy a beer to celebrate your birthday. That's illegal. May the 18th, he bought several hundred rounds of ammunition. We know that by the time he actually got to the school on May the 24th, he had over 1,600 rounds in 58 magazines. And then on the morning of the shooting, there were these chilling texts that he sent to a girl in Germany who he had befriended, so she didn't really know him, and he didn't really know her, but he kind of struck up some kind of a connection with her, and he texted her at 11.21 a.m., he said, I just shot my grandma in her head. We know there was some altercation that morning because he told the girl that he was irritated by his grandmother, something about a phone bill or she had taken away his phone. And then a few minutes later, he said, I'm going to go and go and shoot up an elementary school. And from that point, this is where this 84 minutes of terror unfolds because we know that at 11.28 a.m., there was a crash outside the school. There was a pickup truck that crashed in a ditch. People who were watching described seeing a figure get out wearing body armour. They were standing there quizzically wondering what was going on and he shot towards them twice. They weren't injured. This figure from the car then ran towards the school, shooting at times towards the building. Three police, we know at 11.35, and three volunteer officers and a deputy sheriff followed him in. 
and they went to the door of the classroom where he had fled into. They were grazed by bullets. They do not have life-threatening injuries. And then between 11.37 and 11.45, so an eight-minute period, there was pretty intensive gunfire going on inside the classroom where the gunman was now holed up. There are two adjoining classrooms, room 111 and room 112. They interconnect. And he was in there with the children and two teachers. The school emailed all other teachers and announced a lockdown. The usual routine is that you don't go over the loudspeaker and announce it, but there are ways of communicating to other teachers in other rooms. And then we know that by 12.03 p.m., a lot more police had arrived. By this point, there are 19 police mustered in the hallway outside the classroom where the shooter had gone in and either barricaded or locked the door. There was no attempt made to go in, and that has been confirmed to us by the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, which oversees all the law enforcement agencies. He has confirmed no attempt was made to go in. And yet at this point, there are 19 officers. What makes it all the more unimaginable is that at 12.03, 911 calls started coming through from a little girl in one of those classrooms. She was in room 112. At 12.03, she called. She called again at 12.10. She called again at 12.13, 12.16. And she was told at one point, just stay quiet and stay on the line. By this point, though, the incident commander had made a determination that his officers would not be sent in to breach the door because they were going to wait instead for a tactical unit from U.S. Border Control Agency. The commanding officer took time to organize an operation to tackle the gunman, who he believed was focused on barricading himself in with the children and no longer an active threat. It's been described to us by the director of the Department of Public Safety that Pete Arredondo, the incident commander, made this determination because there'd been a lot of gunfire at the beginning. But he decided that now the gunfire had died down, children were no longer at risk. Benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision, it was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. And yet we know that from the 911 calls, there was gunfire in the background of at least one of the phone calls. We know that at one point the little girl said he just shot the door. So we know that he was still firing. And this is where there's a lot of anger and still pressure on law enforcement to come up with a whole lot more answers because justifying not going in by saying, well, the gunfire had finished so nobody was in any more danger is obviously greatly at odds with the fact that even 19 officers standing in the hallway had to move back away from the hallway and back away up the corridor a little because there was still gunfire going on. That's a key point that's under investigation. Texas officials say Uvalde School District Police Chief Pedro Arredondo is not responding to requests for another interview in their investigation into the school shooting. We're not going to release anything. We have we have people in our community being buried, so. So right. we're going to be respectful. I, I just want your reaction we're gonna, we're gonna, to we're gonna be, the director gonna, McGraw gonna, saying that you were responsible for the decision right. we're to go into be, that room. How do you explain yourself be, to the family? We're going to be respectful to the family. I understand and, that, and, but you have and, an and opportunity going, oh, and sure, and we're, to explain we're gonna, yourself to the parents. And just so you know, we're going we're gonna to do that eventually, obviously. When? And whenever this is done and let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. And just so... While all this was unfolding, 
there were parents who had run to the school. They had heard there was an active shooter and they were begging police, do something. And if you're not going to do something, give us your body armor and we will. There was a mother who was handcuffed. There were parents pepper sprayed. One was pinned on the ground. The mother who was handcuffed at one point then managed to persuade officers to unhandcuff her and said, uncuff me and I'll be good. And then the minute she had been uncuffed, she made a run for it over a fence and ran up to the school to try to get her child. Yeah, I jumped that first gate fence. And once I jumped it, I went to my son's class and I knocked on the door and I remember the teacher saying, um, I'm like, hey, they're already, they're already um, bulge cutting the fence to get me. She's like, you think we have time to get out? I said, you'll have time. I'm going to run for my other son. When you heard that it took law enforcement 75 minutes before they went in and stopped the shooter, what was your thinking, having been inside the school yourself? I don't know. I was just thinking that they could have saved many more lives. They could have gone into that classroom and maybe two or three would have been gone, but they could have saved a whole Oh, more the whole class. They could have done something. We know a dad went up and smashed a window and got children out. And I met one of those children a couple of days ago. I've never seen a child as dead inside and traumatized as she was. She was just staring blankly at the ground. She was shell shocked and a, a light had gone out in her. Reporters families and the police are still piecing together what was happening on the other side of that barricade, inside the classroom. We know only that when the Border Patrol tactical unit actually then went in at 12.51pm that they found the gunman hiding in a closet and as he came out or as they went in, there was gunfire and they killed him. We know that at one point that little girl had reported that there were eight or nine children still alive in her classroom when she called. The cell phone that she was using, we were told by law enforcement, was actually the teacher's cell phone that she took from her teacher, who was by that point dead. Whether this was the same girl on the phone calls or not, we don't know, but there is one girl, Mia Cirillo, who was alive She laid down beside the corpse of her friend who was bleeding out or her bled out and she put her hands in her friend's blood and she smeared it all over herself because she figured um, at the age of 11, she figured that if she could do this, it would convince the gunman that she was dead and he wouldn't come back and kill her. Questions inevitably began to be asked about the killer. What made him do it? How had he been able to get those weapons? And why wasn't he stopped? To be honest, since I've been here, I've not once written his name or said his name. I know from the Parkland shooting that there is a certain etiquette in the community after a shooting that the focus has to be on the victims and not the gunmen. And yet, of course, we also want to know what was going on with him and what drove him to it. There hasn't, to our knowledge, been the leaving of a note or the leaving of any articulated reason by this gunman as to what drove him to this. It seems to have been executed with a certain, well, obviously callousness, but almost 
a warped enjoyment. We know that he walked up to the doorway of the classroom and one of the first people he encountered was one of the teachers and he pointed his gun at her and he said, good night, and then he shot her in the face. There was a calculation to it that was cold and really beyond anybody's comprehension. We know that in the last couple of years, he'd become more socially and academically withdrawn. He had started dropping out of school. He had a job at a local Wendy's hamburger joint. He had harmed animals. He had stalked people online. He had articulated some kind of propensity towards violent thinking. We know that a couple of years ago he'd talked about wanting to graduate and getting a job and what have you, but over the last couple of years that appeared to have declined and he had less and less been even turning up to school. So there was this sort of pattern of of withdrawal that you would think might have triggered in his family some kind of a warning sign or an alarm bell. And there we have it, the makings of a killer who seems to have been something of a dark character, but that darkness never quite pushed anybody around him to raise a flag and say, this guy could be dangerous. Coming up, days after the school shooting in Uvalde, the National Rifle Association, the most powerful voice in the US gun lobby, went ahead with its annual meeting. Our US editor was there. We'll have more after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm chief foreign correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just days after the Uvalde school shooting, 300 miles away in Houston, 
the Goliath of the gun lobby was holding its annual convention. While foreign press presence was limited, our man in Washington was there. I'm David Charter and I'm the US editor of The Times based in Washington. You've just been to the annual NRA convention, the National Rifle Association. And quite by chance this year, it's happened just a few hundred miles away from Uvalde, the scene of the, the most recent school shooting. And there was some speculation that perhaps it wouldn't go ahead. You know, it seems like the most inappropriate time. And yet, very quickly, it was confirmed it was still happening in Texas. Tell me, what was that like? It's been long planned, and they were absolutely determined to go ahead. It's in a vast convention centre. They have 14 acres of displays, and this is individual stands by gun manufacturers and all the accessories, the scopes, clothing and ammunition. 14 uh, a, acres? I can't yeah. even imagine what that looks like. Welcome back, everybody. Clint here today with Classic Firearms, and we've got... Katie with us. How's it going guys? And we're at the NRA annual meet here in Houston, Texas. Excited to go check out a couple of new things that some manufacturers uh, are displaying. with my best friend Jeff over here at Christensen Arms. <laughs> every show, right? Yes, every, every show. show. You said these are hitting pretty hot this year. So one thing that we've noticed, our demographic of long-range precision shooters grows a lot every single year, especially lately. It's a way of life for many people in America. And, and so the good thing about going and trying to talk to people is that you get a better understanding of what it means to them. There were thousands of people there. I would say probably two or 3,000 people in the hall. Not one more! Not one more! Not one more! Not one more! When I turned up in Houston, there's the convention centre on one side of the road, and then on the other side of the road, are the protesters. A lot of signs being held up by demonstrators saying things like, protect our kids, not our guns, photographs of the children who died. It's an interesting contrast when you're covering America because you've got the First Amendment on one side of the road, which is the Freedom of Speech Amendment on the Constitution, and you've got the Second Amendment on the other side of the road, which is the right to bear arms, facing off against each other. And of course, you've got a complete chasm of understanding mm. between the two sides. It was a face-off that continued for three days. I mean, you spoke to some of the protesters. What did they say? May I ask your name? Yes, Adela, A-D-E-L-A, Justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E. I spoke to a woman who's former military. Oh, I'm, I'm, I just turned 50. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was in uh, San Antonio to go to Rivaldi as well, so I've just come over here. But I wanted to ask you, you've got a sign saying NRA Domestic Terror Unit signed a former NRA member. Can you explain the story behind that? Yeah, um, I'm also a retired uh, Harris County Sheriff's Deputy. And so I spent 10 years with the Sheriff's Office and I was- it's Harris County in Texas? Yes, this, this, it's Houston, that county that Houston's in. Okay. Yes, yes. And so um, I was very into gun training and, and buying guns and learning how to use them responsibly. And the NRA used to be more about safe gun training and, and gun safety. And then I noticed that over the years, as these massacres started happening, they became more about guns at any cost, including sacrificing innocent lives every day. And so I stopped my subscription, uh, my membership to the NRA. Um, I'm now a mother. 
And I guess Uvalde, my child is nine, so Uvalde really affected me. Um, you know, thank you for being here. Yeah. And thank yeah. you for quitting. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. My uncles did too. Excellent. I, I, there's another woman down here that says former NRA member. So, um, so that's why you came today. The NRA really in the, in, only in the last 25, 30 years has become a, this very effective, very aggressive lobbying organization hmm. that uses its enormous wealth to influence public opinion and, and particularly lawmakers in Washington to stop any regulation of guns. The NRA, they want to talk about how the Second Amendment says our rights shall not be infringed, but they skip over the first part of the amendment that says well-regulated. What the NRA exists to defend and promote is the Second Amendment of the Constitution. This is drawn up in the late 1700s. The Second Amendment in its entirety is just one sentence. And it says that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So a bit like both sides of the road outside, you've got the start of the sentence, which refers to a well-regulated militia, which is what the gun control advocates point to. We regulate cars. We regulate alcohol. I can't even buy booze on Sunday morning here in Houston. And so we need to regulate weapons. We need to regulate ammunition. Let's regulate ammo the way we regulate Sudafed. I can't go buy multiple boxes of Sudafed, but you can go buy multiple boxes of ammunition. So yeah, the Second Amendment needs to be brought to modern standards with modern language and modern policies and procedures. The NRA and the gun owners point to these end of the sentence, which is often the only bit that they would quote and says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in fact, when you go to an NRA conference with all the speeches, it's something of a chant, like a catechism, shall not be infringed. Stand proud, do not back down, and never forget, shall not be infringed. That is our motto, and that's what we will fight for. The, the, the Sandy Hook primary school shooting in 2012 under President Obama, they were unable to get through any legislation to ban any type of weapon or increase any kind of background check. Mm. A lot of that was due to the NRA lobbying being very successful, very powerful, because it gives out gradings to political candidates, so like from A to F. And that means a lot to a Republican, even in a strong Republican area, because they have to face a primary contest. And if they're getting a low rating from the NRA because they voted for some gun control measures, then they might be unseated by a Republican challenger in the primary. I mean, it sounds like the atmosphere outside was certainly lively, Take us back into the hall. For people who haven't been, you've got acres of gun stands. You've also got an area where where speeches are being made. Who was attending and who was talking? As the age-old saying goes, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Have you ever heard that? No, you've never heard that. Top of the bill was uh, former President Trump. 
What on earth is stopping Democrats from immediately passing measures to ramp up school security? The United States has $40 billion to send to Ukraine. We should be able to do whatever it takes to keep our children safe at home. Other speakers included Ted Cruz, Texas senator. What is the something we should do? To Washington Democrats, the answer is so-called universal background checks and banning so-called assault rifles. Here's the problem. Their so-called solutions wouldn't have stopped these mass murders, and they know this. The answer for too many of them is that their real goal is disarming America. And then the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, was due to give a speech, but he decided instead to visit Uvalde and to send a recorded message. There are thousands of laws on the books across the country that limit the owning or using of firearms. Laws that have not stopped madmen from carrying out evil acts on innocent people in peaceful communities. David, you spoke to some of the people attending. Tell me a bit about them. What sort of people were they and what were they saying to you? What what channel did you say you were? I'm with the London Times. Okay. It's a newspaper, but we have a radio. Adjunct. Yeah, exactly. It's it's fairly new. So I spoke to Norman and Ray outside the convention centre in Houston, leaning up against the metal railings in the sunshine outside with the protesters just across the road. We, we, see the, we actually have solutions. They just make noise. Okay. Yeah, it's a, the solution being more security in schools, more like a arms guard at every school. Well, it, 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 even if, or even just doing away with the gun-free zones, and I, I'd be, I'd be in favor of actually, if, if okay. teachers, if teachers were interested, giving you know a teacher that wanted to. To be a, you know, because you're your own first responder. I mean, the first responders get there after it's already started or it's over with, okay? So if if a teacher... Ray was the most uh, talkative. He was wearing a Trump 2024 blue cap on his head. He gave me the impression he was carrying uh, a concealed weapon on him at the time under his jacket. Would you guys, would you normally uh, carry in Texas? Is that, was that that normal day? I don't leave, I don't leave my house without it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it open for you? Open carry or we can't open. I prefer not to because I want to. I want to maintain the level of secrecy. I don't want. I don't. If something should happen, I don't want them to see the gun on my hip. Yeah. So that you know that I become their first target. Right. Not that I'm worried about being their first target, but it gives me a, it gives me the opportunity to have the element of surprise to be able to respond to an event like right. this. This is you know this is probably the safest place in the country right now. Um, yeah. See, I mean, literally, this, you know, the area around this convention center is probably the safest place in America. I, I look at it like seatbelts. Yeah. Uh, I've never needed my seatbelt, but I put it on every single time. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a, I, uh, Norman's a very tall man, actually. He was in his early 60s. Not that he, he didn't look it, but as he was a mustachioed guy from Texas, also gave me the impression he was carrying a, a gun concealed on his hip. And he was a much more reserved chap. You know, it's, it's our premise that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I mean, and that's that's a simple fact. That if a bad guy with a gun and there's a good guy with a gun, the bad guy's going to go down. Okay? 
But in a school, in a gun-free zone like a school, you can't have a good guy can't have a gun. But what about those? They would say there were a lot of good guys with guns. They just they just waited in the corridor. They didn't. They didn't tackle well, but they were them. still there after the fact. That's the that's the failure. I think everybody uh, acknowledges uh, police forces did not respond correctly. Do, do you think that there, there should be better background checks? Do you think they got that right? Well, well I, I, because that guy, Uvalde. Yeah. Uh, he had a serious juvie record. Absolutely, I agree with 100%. I mean, because they, you know, they've got, you know, a, that's a, there's a record of him coming through, you know, going around shooting people with BB guns, you know? I mean, that's, that's, that's felonious assault. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I mean, okay. So we're reasonable people, you know? <laughs> well, there, is, there, is, there is room for some kind of further measures that might satisfy some, like middle America, you know, like we, well, we are middle America. That's what you. Well, you just say you were in favor of it, so that's what I'm saying. You know, you there is a, there is a sort of middle, uh, there is a middle ground. Of, of to something. some to some extent, but there is a meeting point on something. That's what that, you know, uh, a lot of the people that you meet at an NRA conference, they're the backbone of America. They're people who go hunting at the weekend with their mates. They come from all over America to go to the NRA conference and. They're people who, on the whole, they're suspicious of the federal government in mm. Washington. They feel they've been lied to and misled by the federal government of all kinds. You know, most people, and probably including yourself, don't understand the premise behind the Second Amendment was that it allowed, it gave the people the ability to defend themselves against a tyrannical government. And George Washington himself said that. When I would get into questions about, well, what about banning assault weapons? I know that we can't prevent every tragedy, but here's what I believe we have to do. Here's what the overwhelming majority of American people believe we must do. We need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. One guy, ex-military guy, said to me, well, we find that a derogatory term. What do you mean by assault weapons? And so I said, well, I guess it's a repeat-firing long gun like a rifle. And he picked up his phone and said, if I attack you with this phone, does that make it an assault phone? As if to say, we're responsible gun owners. We know how to use them responsibly. Thanks very much. Just back off. It's only a weapon if it's used as a weapon, you know. It's like the term assault rifle. That's a complete misnomer. There is no such thing as an assault rifle. If I have a baseball bat in my hand, it's a baseball bat. If I hit you with it, it's an assault (laughs) bat. Okay? See the difference? I mean... I certainly learned a lot about the mentality of the gun owners, and I I find a lot of them very sincerely believe that any legislation that's brought in in Washington will be the thin end of the wedge. In other words, if the legislation is to ban assault weapons, assault weapons will then be described in a certain way that enables aggressive enforcement to either take away or to prohibit the use of a lot of the the guns that they own. David, when President Biden visited Uvalde, where where the tragedy had happened, there were people calling out to him to do more, to do something. Is public opinion changing at all? There are signs that public opinion would like to see at this moment stronger gun laws Definitely on background checks, perhaps on the age of ownership of more powerful weapons. But whatever public opinion is, you do come up against the problem of Congress and this 60-vote 
limit of getting something through the Senate. The Senate at the moment is divided 50-50. We're about to have midterm elections in November, where I think it's unlikely that that's going to change very much. And I, I don't see where the 60 votes are going to come from to pass meaningful gun control. It feels like America has been here before. You know, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a spate of mass shootings and there was real political pressure to, to do something. It's amazing to me that we even have to have this debate. I mean, how long are we going to let this go on? And then you suddenly had this moment where presidents like Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, actually, so Democrats and Republicans, wrote to the US House of Representatives in support of banning semi-automatic assault weapons. Every great society is going to face, for the foreseeable future, these incredible tensions between the need for liberty and the need for order. And some of the decisions we'll have to make will be more difficult than this. But this is a lay-down no-brainer. And that ban was actually passed back in September 1994. And around that period, around sort of 93, 94, according to opinion polls, 77% of Americans supported the ban. How are we now in a place where opinion across the country, and particularly amongst Republicans, seems to have flipped completely? Yes, it partly is the polarisation of America. This has coincided with really the, the strongest period for the NRA was in the early 2000s. The, the NRA was unable to stop it going through in 1994, but it was successful in lobbying to have the sunset clause put in. It was a 10-year sunset clause in the 1994 legislation and, and under George W. Bush, it wasn't renewed. It was allowed to expire. Since the assault weapons ban expired 18 years ago, the number of mass shootings has increased dramatically. Republicans have stood very firmly behind their defence of, of people's constitutional right to bear arms. That's the Times US correspondent Jackie Goddard again. But what does that really mean? What did the, the US Constitution actually mean to happen? Because weapons like AR-15s weren't around when the Constitution was written. It was not written with them in mind that everybody has the right to bear an AR-15 and use it in a school shooting. I have to say, I was at the memorial yesterday and somebody was holding up a banner that said, you know, don't bring the 18th century into the 21st century. But we know University of Texas polls have consistently shown Texans divided, though, in terms of how strict to get. 40 to 50 percent of those polled want stricter measures. So you have that down-the-middle divide where... Politicians tread this line of doing something that might prevent future loss of life versus preventing future loss of their jobs. You feel bad walking away from it because these are people whose stories need telling and retelling and retelling. They don't deserve to have the spotlight on them for a week and then be dropped so that we all just move on to the next mass shooting. That spotlight's going to be turned back on the next one and the next one and the next one. While attention has been focused on the small town of Uvalde, 
America's wave of gun violence rages on. In the week following the school shooting in Texas, there were a further 18 mass shootings across America. The investigation continues into what led 10 people to be shot in downtown Charleston, One woman is dead including and seven a 17 other people are injured girl. after a shooting in a Memorial Day festival in Taft and Muskogee. Fire broke out at the Taft Memorial Day festival just after midnight Saturday. Police the shooting say killed a gunman one and walked into this seven. medical facility on the campus of St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, armed with a rifle and a handgun. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times US correspondent Jackie Goddard and US editor David Charter. You can find all of Jackie and David's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers today were Katie Tarrant and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.